Hello and welcome to the latest podcast in our series, Living with Diabetes, brought to you by Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. In this edition, we're looking at the role of exercise in maintaining good health and management of diabetes. Dr. Rob Andrews talks to us about the challenges and benefits of exercise for people living with type 1 and type 2. There's very clear evidence that people who have diabetes, if they exercise, will get the benefit that the general population gets, that they're less likely to get cancer, less likely to get dementia, less likely to get heart disease and just will feel much, much better, much better. They're less likely to get stress at work. Marathon runner Frank Rogers relates his experience, which forms the basis for his new book, Running With Diabetes. I'm living with type 1 diabetes. I know that running is a massive part of how I manage my condition. And if I wasn't running, I know that I would struggle. We talked to Alison Northern, an implementation manager at the Leicester Diabetes Centre, to discover more about the My Desmond online education course for people living with type 2. Just a real opportunity for everybody to be learning, looking at ways and how they can all work together and, and keep each other going during this time, really. Life under lockdown when you're living with diabetes. We talked to DRWF's Lee Calladine about his type 1 management. Uh, focus on the, the NHS guidelines for isolating and protecting yourself from COVID. Stay at home, stay safe. Plus the latest analysis of the way COVID-19 is affecting people with diabetes. Dr. Partha Carr explains. And the average age of death in type one diabetes was around 72 years old, and for type two diabetes was about 78. As with anything across the board with COVID-19, age continues to be the big determinant. And it's a challenging time for charities. How is DRWF coping? I spoke with our head of community fundraising, Tim Green, to find out. We really must not stand still in what is a really difficult time for the country, and many charities as well. We must not forget that, but you know, our focus is ensuring that those living with type 1, type 2 and many other uh, aspects of diabetes is, is looked after and uh, so I'd urge anyone listening to this, uh, if you can do something, get involved, however big or small, it really does not matter. We need you to get behind us at a difficult time uh, and really make the difference. I'm Claire Levy from DRWF, the host of our regular podcast, Living with Diabetes. In this edition, we're looking at the role of exercise in maintaining good health and management of diabetes. Dr. Rob Andrews is a consultant diabetologist and an associate professor at Exeter University. I asked him about the challenges and benefits of exercise for people living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Please bear in mind we recorded this interview just before the current coronavirus restrictions. So the recommendation for adults living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes is that they do 150 minutes of moderate exercise and what we mean by moderate exercise is a form of exercise that you're getting slightly out of breath but not completely out of breath so you could have a conversation but in broken sentences and that you should do two sessions of, of um, anaerobic exercise so weightlifting a week and that through the day you should try and break up your sit time so you're not sitting for a prolonged period of time which is greater than 30 minutes and what are the barriers to this kind of activity so from people with type 2 diabetes have pretty similar barriers to doing activity as people who don't have diabetes so the the commonest barrier is time so either the fact that they can't fit it into their personal life because lots of things are going on in their personal life or that work's getting in the way. And then the other common barriers are expense. So expense to go to gyms, expense to do exercise and weather is the third commonest um, barrier. People with type 1 diabetes have slightly different barriers. So the commonest barrier that they um, express is fear of hyperglycemia so fear of their blood sugars falling and then the second commonest thing that they mention is um, lack of understanding as to how they should adjust their insulin or what they should do with their carburetor intake to make sure that they control their blood sugars and what effect does uh, exercise have on blood glucose levels for both type 1 and type 2 so on the whole for people with type 2 diabetes um 
little shift in the glucose when you do exercise but if so acutely um but when you do if you do exercise regularly then it will bring down your average level of glucose quite a bit um and if you can do uh, the recommendation levels then you can get about as effective as as two diabetes medications so uh, about a a, a 1.2 percent drop in old money um or or a a 10 in new money um so so a good drop in people with type 1 diabetes um you get a a an acute effect during exercise um but that depends on the type of exercise so if you're doing a aerobic exercise so that's a continuous exercise so walking running uh, cycling then your glucose tends to fall but if you're doing an intense exercise such as weightlifting or high intensity training uh, such as doing sprints and things then your blood sugars can go up um, in the chronic um, over the long term some people see an improvement in their in their general control but not everybody does and we think that's probably because they don't always get the right advice about how to change their insulin and their carbohydrate around exercise so they are a bit more cautious and they tend to just prop their blood sugars up a bit so they don't see a huge benefit with their hba1c and, and what are the barriers specific barriers for adults living with type 1 um, new onset versus established so surprisingly when we d- did interviews with patients who had type 1 diabetes um, as well as having the the other barriers that we mentioned, so fear of their blood sugars going down and not sure what to do, they also mentioned um, that um, they were worried about going to the, to, to the gym because they'd be different. So, so I think that was coming to terms with the diagnosis. And then the other thing that they mentioned was that healthcare workers had told them not to exercise when they were first diagnosed. Um, and unfortunately, quite a lot of healthcare workers never went back and gave them permission to start exercising again so they had taken away the impression that because of their diabetes they they couldn't exercise um so yeah patients receive advice from their healthcare professionals and and what does your research show about healthcare professional confidence and knowledge in giving advice about exercise so we did we did a a survey that we um surveyed um just over 200 patient uh, people healthcare workers who work in the field of type 1 diabetes so these are experts in type 1 diabetes and we had people who, who were doctors people uh, nurses and dietitians and what it showed was that doctors were the most confident at um at giving advice um next was um was um nurses and and the dietitians were the least confident but then when we went on to test their knowledge it was the other way around so diet had the best knowledge and were giving the best advice um but doctors unfortunately were the least knowledgeable and not giving the best advice Uh, and so what do people then do to to get the best advice do you think um so it it is difficult so uh, there are um, some websites where you can get information so uh, we have a website called xtod.org there's a very good run site called uh, run suite which is run by ian gallon and there's another site called x carbs which is a a very good site um there is a new thing that's been done by the jdrf which um is called jdrf peak um which is uh, a place where you can go watch videos and things and then there are some very good patient sources uh, where people can get data um but there's there hasn't been any uniform um documentation that's been produced we're trying to, to produce that. So we've, we've done, with funding from the NAHR, we've um, developed a program for training patients. Um, and a lot of that is going onto our website from that, from that program so that people can, can get advice. Um, That's useful. So can you give us an overview then? Um, uh, who is safe to exercise? What type of exercise should we do? When should we do the exercise? How should we exercise? And why so we should do it? Yep. Um, so on the whole, exercising, everybody can exercise. The only people that we suggest needs to be checked out before they, they do exercise and might have some restriction on their exercise are people who have active eye disease. And what we mean by active eye disease is that you are seeing an expert in the hospital who is, who is seeing you about your eyes, so an ophthalmologist. 
Um, or that you have an active foot also or active foot problems, then you might have to change what you're doing. It doesn't mean you can't do something. Um, or that you're having um, something called postural hypertension, uh, sorry, um, or you're having autonomic neuropathy, which can present as blood pressure dropping um, when standing, or it can present as flushing when you eat. And those individuals need to just be checked out by a cardiologist because that's commonly associated with heart problems. Other than that, everybody else can start straight away. But what we recommend is, as we would with all other exercises, is that you start slowly and gradually build up and really listen to your body. So don't, you know, stress yourself right at the start. Just build up slowly. In terms of what is is the best form of exercise, it depends what you're trying to do. So if you're really wanting to lower your um, glucose, and that's the prime reason for doing it, then there's clear evidence that it, that you should do a combination, just like the guidelines are saying, that you should do some anaerobic and some uh, weight training, and that will lower the glucose the most. Um, again, for a general overall fitness, it's best to to be having a variety of exercises that you do during the week rather than one particular one, so that you're exercising all of the, the muscles rather than particularly focusing on one thing. In terms of time of, time of day or things, um, for people with type 1 diabetes, the safest time to do it is first thing in the morning um, before they have their breakfast. Um, and there is quite a lot of evidence just from general studies that if you get up and do your exercise before you do anything else in the day, you're much more likely to stick to that pattern because things don't get in the way. And you're much more likely to, to adhere to that and, and keep doing it. So that's what we do try and recommend that people, if they can, um, that they that it's the first thing they do and then they come back and have their breakfast and then they head off to work. What about type 2 drug treatments? How does this affect exercise? So type 2 diabetes uh, drugs, in terms of worrying about low blood sugars, the only two agents that, that tend to cause, that can cause blood sugars to go down are the sulfonylureas, which the commonest is glycoside, and insulin. Although the risk is really quite low um, because of the fact that people with type 2 diabetes are still producing some of their own insulin. And we know if you're producing some of your own insulin, sounds a bit strange, but the, the byproduct of producing your own insulin, something called C-peptide, is actually protective from having low blood sugars. So, so that helps um, stop the low blood sugars happening. It can happen. The most common place it would happen, which is surprising, but is is if you exercise are within an hour of your meal because that's the time when your insulin level is the highest and also if you're on a sulfonylurea is the time when you will have the, the drug will have stimulated you to produce the most insulin and that's then makes it the point when you're at most risk so so slightly perverse you're at more risk of having a hypo with type 2 diabetes if you exercise after your meal than if you exercise before your meal the other drugs are pretty safe interestingly when we when we look at um when we look at how they interact, some some of them actually cause your blood sugars to slightly go up. So metformin in trials, if you compare people on metformin and not on metformin, the acute effect of being on metformin is your glucose doesn't fall as much as on, on metformin in that acute period when you exercise, uh, which is surprising because you would expect it, it might go up, but that might be due just to other mechanisms of the way it acts. But the other ones are all safe. Right. One of the things that clearly comes up um, when you look at why it is that people have given up um, exercise is that they tend to to try and escalate too quickly or they start too high um, and if you if you if you start too high you can either get just standard things such as um, a, a lot of muscle aching and things and that puts you off the exercise or you can have injuries um, so it's very clear that the that unfortunately the uh, the turtle is the one that wins the race that if you rather than the hare that if you take it slowly and gradually build it you're much more likely at six months to still be doing the exercise than the people who head off at a sprint um, and and escalate very quickly so it's just a question of just having a very easy target that you build up um, and, and get to and you're much more likely to keep doing it and and why is it so important to break up periods of sitting so uh, yeah, this has been a very surprising thing. It came from a couple of early studies in which we, we had done one study that we had 
shown with people with type 2 diabetes that when when they they ex exercised when we looked at their standard exercise um, they didn't seem to be getting as much improvement as, as we expected and what most people do when they exercise is that is that they um, they then sit for a lot longer so if a, a chap goes out for a run for two hours he probably spends about two hours doing very little after the run um, and that led us to kind of think well actually maybe breaking up just sitting around is important so there's been a number of trials that have looked at just getting people to stand six times in an hour um, and have shown that if you do that and they stand for a minute um, that that lowers the glucose um, so actually just breaking up the sitting is enough to, to lower the glucose and in females they get an additional benefit that it also helps lower their their, their fats uh, unfortunately it doesn't do that in men and how does tech help things like fitbits or apple watches so the studies in in people with type 2 diabetes and people without type 2 diabetes there hasn't actually been any in people with type 1 diabetes has shown that people who embrace technology particularly fitbits and things like that um, are much more likely to stick to an exercise and i suppose that we see that with other things that if you get reinforcement of what you're doing it makes it more likely for you to to do things so if you have a fitbit or um, something that's that's measuring your things um, then that can have a, a a real effect. You get a much, much, much more pronounced effect if your healthcare worker either um, agrees, you agree to share it with them and they comment on it, uh, then you get a real huge effect because then you're reinforcing how important it is. Or if you just ask them about it in clinic and note it down. Um, so you can re reinforce that even more if the healthcare person asks about it. There's very clear evidence that people who have diabetes, if they exercise will get the benefit that the general population gets that they're less likely to get cancer less likely to get dementia less likely to get heart disease and just will feel much much better much better they're less likely to get stress at work so even if you don't feel it's it's helping your glucose control it's still doing lots and lots of really good things that will make you feel better marathon runner frank rogers who is also a qualified coach with england athletics relates his experience of being diagnosed with type 1 since 2012 he sets out some useful exercise and training guides in his new book, Running with Diabetes. He recalled that discovering he had type 1 came as a big shock. I had the massive weight loss, so I knew that there was something wrong. Mm. Um, but I was training for one of my marathons, so I thought the weight loss was tied in with the marathon training that I was doing. Mm. But it was excessive. It was, it was more weight loss than... Um, should have been matching up with the training. So I knew something was wrong and I was going to toilet quite a bit. And I had symptoms and they had progressively got worse over like the last six months. Um, but I kind of ignored them. I thought, no, it's, it, it'll, either, it'll either go away or it'll get worse. And it didn't go away, it just got worse. Yeah. So, and you didn't, uh, presumably it affected your running performance? Oh, yeah, massively. I was, um, I've... I was finishing runs and I was having hypos, but back then I didn't even know what a hypo was. Um, so I was just massively hungry mm. and finish a race. I would do like a 10 mile race, which isn't that far. And I'd finish and I would eat like three or four bananas in one go. And my coach at the time was saying, why are you eating so much? Because I'm hungry. And, and that was how I was balancing it. Cause um, I still had some insulin being produced. Um, but with the running, the more I ran, the quicker I ran out so I was having to eat quite a lot and it didn't matter what I was eating I was still losing weight so I thought this this is fine I can eat what I like this is great <laughs> um, and that that lasted that lasted for about three or four months and then it just got worse yeah did you know anybody else living with type one? Oh no I knew absolutely nothing about type one I, I didn't even know what diabetes was I thought um like a lot of people I thought um you got it from eating too many sweets yeah. that, that that was my level of ignorance back then and um, nobody knew had diabetes it wasn't in the family um and i had no awareness of it absolutely none if i can ask you what what age were you diagnosed at i was 39 right yes right yeah yeah well so you were a bodybuilder but switched to running was this before your diagnosis Oh, yeah, yeah. I started bodybuilding. Um, originally, was back in school, I was a boxer. So um, I was a boxer for a number of years. And there was a bit of weightlifting involved in that. And then about 14, 15, I started lifting weights at home. And then 
I, I went to the gym, I ju just did um, weightlifting off for university. So I went to university, qualified as a solicitor, kept me weightlifting up. But as I was doing the weightlifting, I was also a dancer. And I was a dance company, and that folded when I was about 34, 35. So I had a massive um, aerobic hole in my training. And to, to um, deal with it, because the minute the dance company folded, I put on quite a bit of weight. Um, which I wasn't massively happy with. So in, an, in order to replace the aerobic um, exercise back into my training plan, I started to, I took up running. Right. And that kind of, the running kind of took over because I was a salsa instructor as well for a couple of years. Um, so I was about 34, 35 this time. And then I started running. And like I say, the running just took over. Um, so a transition from being a bodybuilder and weightlifting um, five to six times a week to running five, five, six times a week. OK, so can you explain your work with England Athletics UK? You're helping them create guidelines for clubs and running groups to help support yeah, individuals. England, yeah, England Athletics are great. They're like the governing body um, for all the athletics. So all the athletics you see on TV or the running, that all starts at England Athletics. So. If you've ever run a race, they do the licensing for it as well. So they're basically in charge of it. And that's where all the sport in England um, comes from. You get trained up with them. And they have an inclusion policy, which is lovely. And they had this great video. And they had different groups represented all in the line. They had people with dwarfism or restricted growth, people with hearing impairments, people with visual impairments, wheelchair users people with autism, people with amputations. And was as, as I was looking down this line of different people in the inclusion policy, I noticed I wasn't there. Right. And then, then I, did a, cut a, a, did a bit of research on the numbers, and I noticed that if you're living with diabetes, um, we're the biggest group. <laughs> um, and I think we um, there was more people living with diabetes than there were nearly than everybody else in the inclusion policy put together. Mm. It wasn't quite that bad, but we, the, the numbers were fairly, um, fairly around the same. So um, I got onto England Flex and said, "Look, you've got this inclusion policy. It's lovely. It's really nice. What about me?" Um, and basically, everybody else living with diabetes, because um, as you know, um, living with diabetes is one well, of these invisible conditions. Yeah. And the problem with that is it then becomes a barrier. If you don't if you don't see yourself represented in sport or anything, um, and there's no positive reinforcement, um, then it becomes quite isolating and you think, I can't run. Because I, I run marathons. And I thought when I was diagnosed, I thought as soon as they explained what diabetes was to me, I thought, well, that's it. I can't run, I can't run anymore. And mm. I can't run marathons anymore, which was nonsense, cost can. Um, but at the time, when you when you get when you get diagnosed, um, it can feel like your options have massively narrowed down, and part of that is because um, we're not represented. Um, we bring it on ourselves a little bit. I think I feel as a group because we sometimes we can quietly just get on with stuff, um, and we rather than be a bit more militant and say, look, I've got diabetes, it doesn't define me. I can still do everything I could do before diabetes. It's just a bit more complicated. Yeah. So I went on to England Athletics and um, I told them that, look, you need a, you need a new policy um, because there's this massive section of society um, that are not being represented, and I think you kind of should. So we had a couple of charts and I wrote the policy for them. Um, <laughs> and then they did a like a focus on a running story, which was about me because um, I feel that we needed representation. You need to be able to look at people and say, well, look, they do running. They're, they're not that good, but they, they can still go out and they can still compete and they can still perform and they can still run at quite a high level. If they can do it, then I can do it. And that was, that was the whole point of it. So that took a while. And now basically, they didn't have they had the inclusion policy but there was just no mention of diabetes and now it's there and the good thing about it is it's for the coaches and the run leaders so it's the people who are coaching just so one that they know what diabetes is because if they were like me they, they wouldn't have a clue what it was it doesn't take that long to explain it and then 
if you get somebody who's got diabetes and they want to run or they want to um, do long jump or throw discus or shot put or anything athletic based, it's just how to include them and what they and just really basic entry level information um, so that they can include them. So yeah. that was part of it. And then the other part was the representation, just so that um, if you sat there with diabetes and you think that you can't run or you can't do long jump or you can't throw javelins, of course you can. So it's, it's just to um, raise awareness and also um, just be a bit inspiring. Yeah. yeah. So you've written Running With Diabetes. Is this the world's first running book specifically written for, for anybody living with diabetes who wants to run? It is, because um, this was the other thing. While I was when I was doing the stuff for Bingle Athletics, um, I said to them, "Look, there's absolutely nothing for us. If if I wasn't a coach, because I qualified in 2013, I was an assistant coach in 2011, got diabetes in 2012, then qualified as a full coach in 2013. And what I said to Bingle Athletics is, "Look, there's nothing for us. There's one book by Sherry Colberg, which is very good." Um, and it's got two pages, um, um, which is nice, but that was it. There was absolutely nothing else. And again, if you go, if you're wanting to start running um, and you like the idea of it, the easiest way to do it is, right, I'll get a book and I'll have a look at it. And mm. there's just no, there was no books out there. Um, and I thought that was a shame because I know that for me, um, I'm living with type 1 diabetes. I know that running is a massive part of how I manage my condition. And if I wasn't running, I know that I would struggle. Um, I would struggle, struggle quite a bit. And the management of my diabetes wouldn't be anywhere near um, as good as it is. And I wouldn't be achieving any of my outcomes that I want. Like You have different goals about what you want, about how you want your HAB, HbA1c level to be. And... If if I didn't have the running or some sort of some sort of sport or exercise, I know that I would struggle massively to manage diabetes. I talked to Frank for a further twenty minutes in some detail about the contents of his book, so we've actually put that on a standalone Living with Diabetes podcast special. If you'd like to hear more, Frank's book Running with Diabetes is available on Amazon for fourteen ninety nine, and also comes in a Kindle version. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. You're listening to Living with Diabetes, a monthly podcast from DRWF. My Desmond is an online education course for people living with type 2. I talked to Alison Northern, an implementation manager at the Leicester Diabetes Centre, to discover more about the course and how people can access it remotely something which may be particularly helpful during the coronavirus restrictions. Yeah, so Desmond itself stands for Diabetes Education and Self-Management for Ongoing and Newly Diagnosed. It's a collaboratively developed education programme for those with type 2 diabetes. So back in 2003, there were people, um, healthcare professionals from across um, the UK, really, that came together um, to design a national program really they wanted to use what they've been learning in their local areas and bring it together to develop one curriculum um, so um, a curriculum was developed for those people newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and that was piloted and then it went through a randomized control trial um, so that they were you know given that opportunity to look at whether that six-hour group-based program had an effect um, on those people attending and um, there's published papers about this uh, available on the internet um, but um, we showed that there was a reduction in HbA1c um, people reduced their weight more people gave up smoking people increased their physical activities all as a result of attending that six-hour group-based education Whilst that work was going on back in 2006, we also then began a national rollout. There was a push nationally to start making such groups available. Um, so we began then offering healthcare providers across the UK the opportunity to train with us and then begin delivering Desmond groups you know, to their patients in their local areas. Um, and that continues to this day. So we then use that curriculum and the basis of that content, which obviously we continue to make sure 
meets national guidance and all of that. But we use that curriculum then to develop My Desmond, so our online version of the programme, really. Um, so we launched My Desmond just uh, almost two years ago now. Um, you know, we know that we have to move with the times and we need to be aware that one size does not fit all. Groups aren't for everyone. So this is an alternative, um, but also can be provided for people at, once they've been to group, they can have this as a follow on. And obviously, in these current times of, you know, COVID-19 outbreak, this gives us an opportunity um, for those people that would normally be going to group a chance to um, learn about diabetes, what's going on in their body and those kind of key messages really around diet, physical activity, lifestyle um, and, uh, yeah, um, self learning to, to self-manage really from the beginning. So how do people access this new online version, My Desmond, and do they need a referral? So, yeah, um, really depends on where in the country the patients are. Um, and But ultimately, if anybody's really interested in signing up to My Desmond and having a look on the programme and seeing what they can learn, then we would just say in the first instance, drop us an email. So the email address is mydesmond at uhl-tr.nhs.uk um, and then we will put them in touch either with their local provider of Desmond or we ourselves at the Leicester Diabetes Centre will add them to the programme themselves. Now we would always prefer them to be um, sent over to their local um, you know, Desmond teams um, that are within their local area uh, because they can link back to their primary care um, physicians and that kind of thing um whereas us over at the diabetes center don't have those links um so um, so we would prefer that option but ultimately patients can get access via any means as long as they get in touch with us and then we'll point them in the right direction i think we've got that link on the website haven't we i think you have yes yeah, yeah on the drwf website so so if people are struggling they can always go there um or um, google search for the Des my desmond online yeah, they'll probably exactly. bring it up won't it yeah so mydesmond.com sorry brilliant so so how does this differ from face-to-face -face sessions yeah so all of the key messages you know that are in those group sessions are included on the my desmond platform Obviously, they may be presented in a slightly different way because we've had to rethink about how you do that from those in groups. How do we do that online? Um, but um, we have a number of learning sessions on the platform. So they have videos, quizzes, animations. There may be some text to read or a link to an external um, reliable source. Um, but yeah, all of those key messages around diet, physical activity, what's going on in the body, all of that is within the My Desmond programme. So actually, in terms of its content, it is very similar. The one beauty of us being doing something online, though, actually means we can go further. Because um, obviously, as you can imagine, in a six-hour group, there's only so much you can discuss. <laughs> you know, you've only got six hours, so... Um, and that soon finishes. Um, so we're online. We have the opportunity to to offer more um, information as well. So people can um, learn a, a lot more, um, as you say, than they could in a, in a session maybe and ask maybe more or, or find out personal questions. Yeah, exactly. So there's um, a range of um, information or educational um, material that's available the moment that they log into the programme. But then we have these eight weekly booster sessions as well. So they bring in new topics like foot care or um, relapse prevention. So where somebody's made a lifestyle change, but trying to keep them, um, you know, keep them going really. Um, and other things where things like um, reducing sedentary behavior. So getting people to stand more um, or um, where to find sources for good muscle training activities all those information, that information which wouldn't normally, you know, you wouldn't be able to explore that much in a face-to-face -face can be found in the My Desmond programme. And one of the big things as well is obviously doing something online. What we were really conscious of was about having, providing patients with the opportunity to still chat with and network with other people with diabetes. Um, so um, 
we wanted to include that opportunity in my Desmond in, in as close as we could get it to what we would do in a group. So we developed a chat forum. So people can post their questions, their queries. We've got people putting how, you know, how well they're doing and what, how they've achieved it. And then people can comment on it, make further suggestions, and they can really still learn from each other um, whilst also obviously going through that educational material that's built into the programme as well. And certainly at the moment when everybody is isolated, that's probably even better, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's a re- just a real opportunity for everybody to be learning, um, you know, looking at ways and how they can all work together and, and keep that, you know, each other going during this time, really. Alison Northern. And a reminder of their website for more information, which is at mydesmond.com. DRWF. Staying well until a cure is found. Life under lockdown when you're living with diabetes can be a worrying and challenging time, particularly if you're shielding. I've been talking to Lee Calladine, DRWF's event manager, who lives with type 1. I've had type 1 diabetes for almost 20 years. I've been on multiple daily injections uh, since day one and never changed uh, to anything like a pump or my regimen. Um, I manage it as tightly as I can and keep good control. Um, Always maintain good HbA1c's and followed the guidance from my diabetes team and the NHS around diet and exercise, injection technique and all of the other things that, uh, that I'm supposed to do as a person living with type 1 diabetes. So uh, you also received a letter saying you were going to have to self-isolate. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So once it became clear that the virus meant people with certain conditions who were classes at risk had to work from home or self-isolate, I I received the letter pretty promptly from the government um, and the letter had full instructions on about how long I was going to be isolated, um, what kind of things I should or shouldn't do uh, and some guidelines of who I should contact like my GP or the hospital if I didn't feel very well or if I was showing symptoms of the virus. But really the letter was about Um, limiting your risk and making sure that you um, isolated uh, and didn't put yourself at at any risk. Uh, When you are poorly, uh, it really affects your diabetes, doesn't it? So I know this is a viral infection. Um, The latest report talks about, you know, people with type 1 when you get a bacterial infection, but any infection can really throw your blood sugars, can't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, Sometimes my blood sugars alert me to the fact that something's not quite right before I even show any symptoms of an infection or a virus. Um, And that can be anything from like a a common cold um, up to, I don't know, perhaps you've got an infection in your fingernail or anything like that that can happen, even minor stuff. It seems to affect my blood sugar levels and usually it pushes them high and my normal management so I would take a corrective dose um, to try and bring my blood sugars down I might reduce or increase my background insulin and just try to manage my doses and my diet to bring it back down but I can normally tell if there's something not right or if I've already got a cold or, or an infection because it does push my blood sugars up and it, they, they become much harder to, to control. Um, but again, there's guidance from the NHS on that, from your team, um, and they instruct you on what to do, which usually means taking um, corrective doses of insulin every couple of hours, drinking lots of water and, and doing lots and lots of testing. So, Lee, have you got any advice for anybody else in a similar position to yourself? And is there anything that you would point to on the DRWF website and resources that you think is useful? Yeah, I think the 
best advice I would give to people um, is what I've followed myself, and that is just uh, uh, focus on the, the NHS guidelines for isolating and protecting yourself from COVID. I didn't really follow the government guidance because it seemed to fluctuate and change as the weeks went by. So I, I followed my my diabetes team's advice, uh, the NHS guidelines, um, and I also think looking at uh, information that is 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 good verified information so DRWF have got some amazing uh, leaflets about all different aspects of living with diabetes the managing diabetes while you are ill is a really good one which could be handy at the moment the website's always updated with great news and information especially the latest NHS and diabetes information Um, and I think yeah just protect yourself follow the guidance stay at home, stay safe. So have you heard from your specialist diabetes team at the hospital? Yes. Um, Even though the clinic's not open and operating normally at the moment, um, they are doing uh, appointments and uh, reviews via uh, Zoom. So I've spoken to my consultant at the hospital and had my... um, uh, diabetes review to look at my HbA1c results um, and the results and data from my Libre and my blood glucose tests uh, via a video call which was great yeah excellent yeah and it meant you know not going to the hospital not having to get parking and pay for parking um, and the team at the hospital said as a trial, this is actually working really great and they might roll it out even after the COVID crisis is over. Research into COVID-19 fatalities in the UK has indicated a high proportion of people living with diabetes. While media headlines have been quite dramatic, it appears that the correlation is mainly in line with older people and often with other health challenges. To put this into context, our regular contributor, Dr Partha Carr, a national speciality advisor on diabetes with NHS England, has been looking at the data and posted this analysis on social media. And understandably, there were a lot of worry and anxiety, so uh, we'll try and, uh, you know, as a system, try and support everybody. But just a quick few things to sort of mention. Uh, don't uh, forget that the most important determinant in this is age. Um, and the average age of death in type 1 diabetes was around 72 years old. And for type 2 diabetes was about 78. As with anything across the board with COVID-19, age continues to be the big determinant. Type 1 diabetes does indeed carry more risk than type 2 diabetes. But for parents out there, which straight away raises anxiety, I think it's important to note that the absolute risk below the age of 40 is low until the data been analysed date. Uh, you know, there's been no deaths recorded below the age of 20. So that's reassuring. And we are, we are speaking to paediatric colleagues and associations to look at their views as well. As regards shielding, all the data has been given to the chief medical officer to consider. Uh, but as uh, as is very evident from the data, it's not binary. It's based on your age, your glucose control, your weight. Um, and I think on that note, the important things to m- mention is that there are a couple of things which we can't modify in life. We can't change your age. We can't change your ethnicity. Um, but we can probably impact on the weight as well as the glucose control. It's important also to look at the data, which suggests that, that you know you want to have an optimal range. It's not about to being too low uh, in any respect. So that's important message as well. Um, But another thing which we should not forget is the issue of socioeconomic deprivation. That's something which is modifiable to an extent and we all have a part in it. So please, let's not forget about that either. But overall, uh, the data hopefully should help shape um, what we do next, where we are. The NHS is here to help. We've got a national advice helpline um, set up uh, and there are self-management platforms coming out for type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, all to help people. And there, are, there is no lack of people out there to help. So stay safe. We're here to take questions. Uh, keep washing those hands. Um, and uh, there is no doubt at the end we'll come out through this. DRWF. Staying well until a cure is found.
You're listening to Living with Diabetes, a monthly podcast from DRWF. It's a challenging time to be fundraising for charities and DRWF is no different. I spoke with our Head of Community Fundraising, Tim Green, to discover more. As a, as a fundraiser uh, and heading up the fundraising team, it's to try and create that sense of community togetherness, uh, particularly at the moment uh, in a difficult period we're all going through, um, in search of that common goal, which is obviously to uh, find a cure for diabetes and and support those living with. So all of our fundraising events have been cancelled or postponed at the moment. So what kind of things can people do to support the charity now? Well, indeed, you're right. A number have been cancelled and postponed, um, which is worrying for a charity. Uh, However, um, the landscape is so that we can still do uh, many of our events virtually, uh, which does add some challenges, admittedly. uh, But we can still ask people to... Um, go out and run and, and walk and cycle, uh, adhering to the government guidelines, of course, but they can still do that daily exercise and incorporate that with the challenge for DRWF. Um, we've also started to create virtual campaigns such as uh, Donate Your Fuel, uh, in which we're encouraging people to donate what they would have spent getting to and from work uh, to the charity. Um, that's kind of a, an immediate answer to the postponements and cancellations, but What we need to really um, tell people that are looking to support us is we can still have people sign up for the back end of this year. So, for example, we have a spinnaker tail, abseil, skydives, a London 10K. There's many, many opportunities. Uh, They they do fall, you know, in in the latter part of the year. But let's get people on board now. Let's sign people up now. And let's begin that fundraising momentum now as well and, and get that much needed cash into the charity. So why is it important for people to continue to fundraise for DRWF? Well, you know, it is important because whilst the the country may have stopped in in some terms and we are working from home and businesses have stopped, research doesn't stop and most certainly must continue. And without that much needed income um, from fundraisers and uh, and the voluntary sector, which is what we rely on so much... um, that research is really at risk and we cannot enable that to happen. So um, we really must rally the troops, uh, get our supporters and and followers on board uh, and continue to fundraise. Brilliant. Um, Is there any help and advice you can offer and can people still get in touch with DRWF for their help? Yeah, absolutely. So all of our normal uh, connection points, uh, whether that be social media, um, whether that be the telephone, email, it's all still active. It's all still being managed uh, wonderfully by our team. Uh, we are working remotely, uh, like many much of the country, but it, it's all still there, still still uh, working. We're going into the office uh, on a rotated basis to collect posts. So, um, you know, if people are sending in donations, they're still being picked up. Please, uh, please do uh, recognise that. Um, but uh, contact us, get in touch, uh, phone, email, um, and the support we can give you is, is very much the same as what it would be uh, on a normal landscape, uh, whether that's a one-to-one with a fundraiser if you're not sure what to do uh, we can get off you that support um, the same day uh, to to ensure that you've got all the tools at your disposal um, to do what you need to do great Um, is there a way people can team up at home yeah so um, uh, virtually um, that's one really good thing that's come out of uh, this particular crisis is um, with Skype and, and, and Zoom and various other ways that people can connect uh, virtually via their laptop, iPhones uh, and other devices um, is to do virtual quizzes. Uh, there's many families out there in the UK that are doing quizzes on a Friday night, paying a donation um, and all getting together. Not only are you catching up with the loved ones that you most dearly want to see, uh, but you're also making a difference in the community as well. Um, if you're in the, we've worked with families that are um, having a bit of competitive nature within a husband and wife setting. So how many uh, press ups and sit ups can uh, can each person do in a day? Uh, and the winner cooks dinner. <laughs> so um, sorry, the loser cooks dinner and the, the winner gets to enjoy. So, um, you know, there, there are many ways that you can team up at home and um, really keep that um, fun aspect going in, in what is a, a difficult period. Can you still send out T-shirts to people? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, we, we have a rotor in which people are going into the office um, and, and ensuring that things are coming out and keeping on top of. Uh, and one of those things is any requests for T-shirts, running vests, cycling vests, etc., etc., for our, for our fundraisers um, can be picked up, packaged and dropped off to uh, 
um, the secure raw mail point at the at our, our centre where we, we work out of. So absolutely, if people are looking to, to get that um, uh, piece of material on their body that's, that's really shouting uh, DRWF, um, then we can absolutely get that organised and sent out to you. Great. Anything else you'd like to add, Tim? I think we've covered a lot there in terms of uh, how important it is for DRWF to keep moving forward, the research to keep moving forward, but ultimately the fundraising to keep moving forward and, and coming in. Um, we really must not stand still in what is a, a really difficult time for the country and many charities as well. We must not forget that. But, you know, our focus is ensuring that those living with type 1, type 2 and many other uh, aspects of diabetes is is looked after and uh, so I'd urge anyone listening to this, uh, if you can do something, get involved, however big or small, it really does not matter. We need you to get behind us at a difficult time uh, and really make the difference. British cricketing legend Sir Ian Botham OBE has led a call for people to support DRWF to continue vital work funding diabetes research during the COVID-19 pandemic. Serene is no stranger to the challenges faced by families with diabetes. His daughter Becky has type 1 and has had to self-isolate. We're extremely fortunate to have Serene and his family supporting DRWF and encouraging people to dig deep to help our important diabetes research to continue. This is what Serene had to say in a short message of support posted to social media. These are difficult times for all of us and even more than ever charities require your help and support. By supporting DRWF, you will enable the continuation of funding much needed research and providing support for people living with diabetes. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. And that brings us to the end of this edition of DRWF's podcast, Living with Diabetes. To keep up to date with the latest news and information, or to discover how you can continue to support DRWF at this challenging time, please visit the website at drwf.org.uk. This is Claire Levy from Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. Our thanks to all the people who talked to us and also to you for listening. I'm looking forward to joining you again in our next edition of Living with Diabetes. Living with Diabetes is a Blue Aurora media production for DRWF. Copyright 2020 Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. All rights reserved. <laughs>